are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and tonight we're looking at chapter 3, finishing it out verses 14 through 22. That's Revelation 3. You'll find this on page 1030 of the Pew Bible. We're looking at verses 14 through 22. The church in Laodicea. Hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, of course, as you know, this is the last of the seven letters written to the worst of the seven churches. Scripture has already supplied the descriptor, the L descriptor for us, in the fact that the church at Laodicea was lukewarm. This was an important center of trade and communication, a very wealthy city. It was the ancient world's equivalent, I believe, to Palm Springs or Beverly Hills or the Riviera. Very wealthy. So rich were the citizens that in the great or after the great earthquake of 17 AD, they refused any imperial relief because they could afford it themselves. They built theaters, they built a stadium, the gymnasium, very elaborate baths. And close to the church in Laodicea were hot springs from which an aqueduct brought warm water. It was symbolic of a wealthy church that was relatively bland, dull, boring, no strong convictions, no distinguishing traits, no notable achievements. The only distinctive feature about the church in Laodicea was self-conceit. They were very rich and very proud. 
Look, as they would say, how we've been blessed with incredible wealth and prestige. God must be pleased with us. Their commercial success, I think, had bred a deep religious pride and self-satisfaction. And it is to this church, mired in proud, conceited spirit, that Jesus now speaks. The title of Christ comes in verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You may know that the word amen was the response that Abram gave to God's promise of the covenant. That's where it originated. In Genesis 15, this is what it says. God said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that word believed is the first time used in scripture in that passage. It's the Hebrew from which we get the word amen. So the root idea there is certainty. And Abram was certain of God's promise. It was as good as done. It's as if he amened the Lord. And following Abram, those who express their belief in what is said often say, Amen. Asaph and his brothers sang in 1 Chronicles 16, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. Same word. So drawing from this Old Testament motif, Paul draws together all the divine promises, and this is what he says. All the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. All that God has spoken to the church throughout the ages has been realized in Christ. He fulfills it all. The Lord Jesus is the glorious fulfillment of everything that's been promised by the Father. Christ is the living demonstration that God is constant and firm and unfailing. He is the amen. God's love is boundless. His love is everlasting. His love is unassailable. And Christ is the amen. The salvation of believers is complete. It is eternal. And Christ is the amen. If you ever doubt, you look at Christ. He's the amen. The power of his blood and the fullness of his grace will never diminish. And he is the amen. What he says to the church is absolutely true. It's certain, and it calls for a sincere belief. Why? Because he's the amen. One woman sometime, not too long ago, sat in that pew. And we met on several occasions. She had, was not a Christian. And I said to her, why aren't you a Christian? And she said to me, I can't believe. And I said to her, you have no reason not to believe, because he is the amen. Christ Jesus did not lie. He cannot lie. He would never, ever lie. He is the living, breathing amen. But then he goes on to describe him by the phrase, the faithful and true witness, which dovetails nicely, I believe, with the amen. Because it shows that Jesus Christ is a steady, reliable, trustworthy witness to the truth of God. He was perfectly obedient as a servant who came to do the Father's will. 
Paul said to the Philippians, you know this passage extremely well, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came on a mission which he accomplished. He came on a mission from which he never deviated. He is the faithful and true witness. The inspired scripture calls Jesus this title because he testified faithfully concerning all things given him by the Father. He taught the truth of God with authority. He taught the way of salvation without flaw. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and he pronounced judgment without prejudice. Even his enemies had to admit, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Luke 20, verse 21. He confirmed his teaching by performing signs and wonders and miracles. And in John 10, 25, Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He is the true and faithful witness. Eventually, Jesus even bore witness in his death and by his death. The Greek word witness, of course, as you probably have already heard, is that from which we get the English word martyr. By death, those who give up their lives for Christ bear witness. They seal their testimony with their blood. And the cross of Jesus Christ was the greatest testimony ever given. Even the centurion, no Christian as far as we know, said truly, this man was the Son of God. The testimony of Jesus ought to be received and believed and regarded as the very word of God itself. To a church that's failing in truth and loyalty and devotion, the faithful witness calls them to account. And the same can be said for any Christian who has slipped into a season of dullness. Believe and repent. But then he comes to the phrase, the beginning of God's creation, which doesn't imply that Jesus is in any way a mere creature. That's not what he's saying. The phrase is not affirming ancient Arianism or modern Unitarianism. It affirms that Christ, as the source and origin of the entire created order, is preeminent. From the smallest to the greatest, Christ made it all. And there's nothing that was not made by him. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created, unqualified. Things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's not just the author of the first creation, as this does say, but he's also the architect of the second creation. By his death and resurrection, Jesus inaugurated the work of the new creation. The new age has dawned. The messianic kingdom has been established. And in that sense, as the beginning, he is the first cause and the founder of the messianic kingdom. He is preeminent. Revelation 21.5 says this, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new people, new Jerusalem from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Christ inaugurated this glorious new age as the judge of the living and the dead. 
Paul says you and I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Is that right? Well, of course, because Jesus has every right to weigh in the balance the church in Laodicea, the church in Hudson, and every other church on the face of the globe. After all, he is the fulfillment of the promises and the truth of God and the author of the new creation. He is a judge with supreme authority, unfailing veracity, and ultimate efficacy. And that's who we serve and worship. And that's who appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. What a wonderful title at the beginning of this difficult letter. So then this Jesus comes to the condition of the church. I know your works, he says. You are neither cold nor hot. And I doubt any of the other churches are as infamous as the church in Laodicea. Who has not heard of being so lukewarm that he wants to spew them out of his mouth? This church was given to compromise. Neither one thing nor another. Someone who is spiritually cold is alienated and estranged from Jesus Christ. He resists the gospel. He opposes the church. He is set against Christ. He's very evil. But at least there's no question about his convictions. If he's turned, that same fervency is devoted to Christ. Another person who is spiritually hot knows Christ and is heartily devoted to him. His faith is warm. His love is zealous. He has a heart to serve the Lord Jesus. This is that to which all should aspire. It's the ideal disposition of any Christian. But here were the Laodiceans. They're neither cold nor hot. They're insipidly bland. They're dull and lukewarm. They were spiritually half-hearted, ready and willing at a moment's notice to compromise. They were neither immoral. We have no indication that they were idolatrous. There's no evidence that they were heretical. They were just tepid, indifferent. Their sin was spiritual apathy. They were religiously indifferent. And this was due in part to their spiritual neglect. I'm sure that it likely overtook them gradually. It's something to which all of us, I believe, must pay careful attention. Many are content to bear the name of Christ without doing anything about it. Many are comfortable worshiping without delight, serving without zeal. In fact, this is a command. I hope you know that. Psalm 37.4 commands us, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4.4 commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. Imperatives. Many benefit from the fellowship of Christ without ever contributing to the work of Jesus Christ. They reap the spiritual things but are unwilling to sow the material things. They have no concern for the loss. Lost. They have no willingness to contribute. They take no risks for the Lord. They don't care about the youth. According to John Flavel, they are a generation that is too politic to venture much and yet so foolish as to lose it all. What I think is striking is that the Lord would rather have them spiritually cold than lukewarm. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
He would rather they be utterly destitute of faith than mildly committed in a nominal fashion. Because the gospel has a better chance with openly godless people than nominally religious church members. The Laodiceans claim to be rich, prosperous, among the spiritual elite. And yet Jesus says they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that staggering series of descriptors means that the situation there is dire. Charles Spurgeon once told a story. He said, two members of my congregation perished by a fire in their own house. They were not consumed by the flames, but they were suffocated by the smoke. No blaze was ever visible. Yet they died as readily as if they had been burned to ashes by raging flames. In this way, he says, sin also is deadly. Comparatively few of those who live in churches are destroyed by outrageous flaming vices, such as blasphemy, theft, or blatant immorality. Yet crowds of them are perishing by that deadly smoke of indifference that casts its stifling clouds of carelessness around them and sends them asleep into everlasting destruction. Oh, he concludes that they could be saved from the smoke as well as from the flame. Please note, Jesus is not angry with the Laodiceans. He's disgusted. Indifference nauseates him. Because you are lukewarm, he says, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so he calls them to zeal and repentance in verse 19, because their self-reliance is like fool's gold. It looks impressive, but it's actually worthless. It has absolutely no value. However, before this, he prescribes three remedies for their spiritual condition. First of all, he says, buy from me gold refined by fire, which is the remedy for spiritual poverty. Jesus offers true redeeming grace free to us, but costly to him. And to obtain this grace, it required him to shed his own lifeblood. So if the Laodiceans want true riches, they are to part with their sin and receive Christ. Second, he says, buy from me white garments, which is the remedy for spiritual nakedness. Christ offers the robe of imputed righteousness, the finest garment you'll ever find in this world. It's described as white for purity and perfection and infinite worth. So lay aside your filthy rags and be clothed with his royal garments. But then third, he says, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes, which is the remedy for spiritual blindness. We should renounce our own wisdom and rely upon the truth in his illumination. That's what he's saying. He opens the eyes to see our way and to know our end and to understand our duty. The most darkened sinner can have his, the eyes of his heart enlightened if Christ so wishes so that he can see. Only then will he or she or anyone else be able to see the unsearchable riches that he offers in the gospel. So these are the spiritual remedies that Christ offers, and they can be purchased only from him. There is no other source. There are no other remedies. He offers them, and he alone. 
Come, he says in Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. As a gracious king, our Lord tenders the offer even to the church at Laodicea. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. Aren't you staggered with me of the Lord's incredible patience and kindness and compassion? Because to those with whom he's thoroughly disgusted, he still expresses love. It's as if he's saying, if I didn't love you, I would not have rebuked you. I would have given you over to your own sinful desires. But no, Jesus Christ stands at the door and knocks, and he keeps knocking. The present tense of the verb there suggests that our Lord knocks again and again and again. He does so by the truth of his word and the influence of his spirit and the prods of the personal conscience. And by all the means of his appointment, he knocks at the door of the soul. And if we open up to him, he'll come and dine with us and have intimate fellowship with us. And I think it's an amazing thing to consider that the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God would desire to fellowship with the likes of us. (laughs) It's a very personal appeal, to be honest with you, because salvation is a very personal matter. The door of which he speaks appears to be the door of the human heart. Some among us have responded to opening that door. You know who you are, and you are his friends. Others have kept that door shut, and he's knocking and knocking and knocking. It is a season of grace. The apostle says today, if you hear his voice or if you feel his knock, do not harden your hearts. Because seasons of grace are not indefinite. Seasons of grace do come to a close, you know. Once the season is over, there is no more opportunity for salvation. The promise ends with with this. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Jesus Christ has absolute dominion over the universe. Everything is under his feet. It was the reward for his conflict with Satan and his victory over the grave. Paul says, and I quote, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And he bears that name which is above every name to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is the highest place of honor. And it is on that same glorious throne that we who persevere in faith will sit. (laughs) That's staggering. What a stunning promise. It would be a blessing to serve in heaven, but to reign? Long ago in the days of Moses, God promised that this would be the case. In Exodus 19.6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this prophecy was realized in the work of Christ, who fulfilled the ancient prediction. Revelation 1, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, 
priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so he makes an amazing pledge to anybody who perseveres by believing in him. The one who conquers, if you believe to the end and hold fast to your faith and confession, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. By faith. By believing in him. This is the victory that has overcome the world, says John. Our faith. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to achieve anything. You simply trust until you draw your last breath. We who conform to him in perseverance will conform to him in glory. We will share his dominion. It's an astonishing thing. It's an overwhelming privilege. It's hard to conceive of the dignity and the grandeur and the majesty of such a privilege. And the Lord Jesus is pleased to make this pledge to even the weakest believer. He offers the heights of exaltation because he went through the depths of humiliation. We're told, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The God-man endured shame and hardship and death. He suffered under the curse of God, and therefore the believer's debt of sin has been fully paid, and the offer of the gospel is now freely tendered. But this is only for the believer. The non-believer is already condemned. I hate to say it, but it's true. The non-believer, the non-Christian, the one who fails to open that door when he knocks, that person is already condemned. And unless and until he or she receives Christ by faith, he or she will die in her sins. So in closing, let me say that we can realize there is more than one way to spiritual ruin. It's not just gross sins like Hitler or Stalin. We're told that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. And sinners will be condemned for the sins of omission as well as for the sins of commission. They will be punished for neglecting their duty as well as for breaking the law. Someone once asked, and I've said this before, so forgive me for saying it again, but someone was once asked, what must I do to go to hell? And the answer, nothing. Prosperity is dangerous because it tends to obscure the truth of our situation. It's analogous to sitting on a lawn chair on the peaceful deck of the Titanic. The apostle says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And do you know what that is? That is a metaphorical way to describe the Christian's gradual apostasy. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The ship drifts past the landing because the pilot is distracted at the helm. In the New York Times, it says something like the divorce rate and the unwed births are higher among nominal Christians than the non-religious people. 
Because the nominal Christian fails and struggles to meet the religious expectations without the spiritual power needed to live a Christian life. Because he's nominal. He's trifling with Christianity. He's flirting with Christ. And such hypocrisy proves that it's worse to be lukewarm than to be either hot or cold. It's the nominal, lukewarm Christian that's likely to make shipwreck of his faith. One time, a Welsh minister began his sermon by leaning over the pulpit and saying this, Friends, I have a question to ask. I can't answer it. You can't answer it. Neither an angel from heaven nor a devil from hell can answer it. And as every eye was fixed upon him, this is what he said. The question is this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You and I have to row against the world's current and guide the ship to the heavenly harbor. We need to give heed to God's word in which are matters of the greatest importance. We need to attend faithfully as you've done tonight. We need to try to listen diligently and believe joyfully and submit cheerfully and esteem the grace of God in Christ as the greatest treasure of all. And if we fail to make our Jesus our treasure, our hearts will be misplaced. So we're exhorted, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. May God enable all of us here tonight do that very thing. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.